But his female disciples understood him and they stood by him. Mary Magdalene stood by him. They understood his messiahship because, you see, women can see strength in weakness in a way males find difficult. And particularly because the males want to benefit. They would benefit from the power. And But the women, you see, with the potential of Jesus to be a world leader, to be the political messiah, who voluntarily sacrificed himself, they know he must be God. And that is why it's no surprise that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. That is the voice of Dr. Neve Middleton, author of Jesus and Women Beyond Feminism. She joins me today to discuss complementary human relations and a revolution of grace. You are listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Middleton, welcome. Thank you. In Jesus and Women Beyond Feminism, you reference evolutionary biology, the historical formation of religion, Christianity in particular, its propagation, and a distinct female impact. Tell me about your research and approach to this book. Well, in the book, I say that a combination of evolutionary biology, feminism, and the Me Too movement highlights the revolutionary attitude of Jesus in a new way that illuminates the way forward for women in both the church and in society. And you see, one of the things we've learned from evolutionary biology is religion and politics evolved in tandem to keep male domination, to keep men in power and to keep women submissive to them. You always have to make a distinction between religion as a phenomenon and the religion when it's under the, the control of its founder. Once it became the state religion of the Roman Empire, it dramatically regressed and women just got the, the role they always had. But the, as I said, the early church reflected Jesus' treatment of women. So you see, evolution also shows how those male power structures developed, how they evolved and how embedded they are in society and, and how religion and politics, you know, support male, the male power structures and the patriarchal structures. You see, now that women have gained, we have gained rights and freedoms in the West. They enable us. They give us a greater understanding of how those structures evolved. And then they show and how hardwired, you know, the male will to power and how hardwired these characteristics are. So when you read the Gospels and you see the way Jesus treated women, you, you know, he always, I mean, it's generally been recognized by women that he treated women in an amazing way. But the new knowledge we have highlights it even more as really revolutionary his treatment of women. And also, you see, in Genesis 1, it's made very clear that God gave males and females equal dominion over the world. And it was only when Genesis 2, when the Adam and Eve, the conflict, the males became dominant. And the loss of harmony between the sexes, you see, that's another thing in Genesis, was the cause of the loss of all harmony. We don't have the Trinitarian Imago Dei. We, we don't have a harmonious world. We don't have the image of God. And to restore the restoration of all harmony is, will be grounded in the restoration of the harmony between the sexes. When you read the Gospels, you can see that it was, I'd say, the main part of Jesus' ministry was paving the way 
for the restoration of the harmony between the sexes. You mentioned tearing down structures that are hardwired. How does someone get beyond that hardwiring? Where would you even begin? Well, you see, the thing is, hardwiring is a word that's used as well to describe the traits, the characteristics, like the male will to power is hardwired in males. And you see, that's another thing that, that the Me Too movement has helped to show. Basically, that coercion, like sexual coercion, is built into the fabric of society. Women have gained rights and freedoms that have enabled them to, you see, put it this way, feminism could only have arisen in a Judeo-Christian culture because uh, the preaching of Christianity and Jesus' treatment of women, it did work its way out into secular society. That's why women have those rights and freedoms. And you see, in second wave, in, in second wave feminism, when women fought for their freedoms, it did help them. It did shed an awful of, of light, you know, on how they had to fight against male dominance. You know, they had to fight against male dominance. And they have gained a lot of rights and freedoms. And one of the things the Me Too movement shows, we've a long way to go. The world is still overly male dominated. Okay, one of the things, you know, that feminism, they would identify as one of the big issues between male and female is, that, is objectification. When you look at the Gospels, that's the other thing. Jesus saw all women in the fullness of their dignity and personhood. He saw them as full persons. He didn't judge them, judge them by gender or anything like that. And he was so lovingly egalitarian in his treatment of them. You know, the way he saw them, he used a lot of, another thing, he used a lot of female metaphors. He really understood women. The metaphors he used and the imagery he used in his parables and in his stories showed that he had such a deep understanding of women, their work, their joys, their tribulations. He understood them so well. He was so poetic talking about them. He, he, he observed them. I mean, he even mentioned about how, when he was comparing his disciples, you know, when he was, he was talking about how they'd suffer when he died. Like we compared him to a woman giving birth in pain, but she feels such joy. I mean, he obviously had seen women giving birth, right. but he was able to talk about it. He wasn't squeamish, you know, in a society. You see, men generally, and, men, and this is in the Bible, men are judged by their overall personality, but women have to be either the, the perfect wife, and it's, you know, they're on the horror spectrum, like they're bad. Good girl, bad girl, there's no between women, and women are judged. I mean, even in the Old Testament, the woman who wears makeup is considered to be on the horror spectrum and dangerous, and we're considered, you know, men were considered hapless victims of dangerous female seductresses, and the proverb was all about teaching a male how to get a good wife. Jesus defended women. The Pharisees, because they saw how he defended them, they were always trying to trick him. They were looking for reasons to arrest him. The only criticism Jesus gave us was of males. You know, when he said, a man who looks, you know, adultery is more than the act. A man looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. Now, that doesn't mean a man, you can't desire a woman. What it means is he's talking about objectification. That a man who objectifies a woman and thinks of her just as that, that would be a revolutionary thing to say then. The story of, you know, do you see this woman, you know, the woman of the night? The woman that the prostitute came in and anointed him, massaged him, and the Pharisees were all, you know, horrified at it. And when he said to Simon, Do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see this woman? In other words, he wanted, she's a person. To them, she was subhuman. Do you see this woman? And then he did. That's the other thing. It was perfectly plain, you see, from her. He was socializing with prostitutes, and it was obvious by her, by her reaction to him, that he was healing them psychologically. He wanted them to realize that they weren't subhuman, that they weren't less human than other people, because they were treated as surprised, that we're all sinners. He healed them psychologically. They would feel they're just as good as all anyone else. The reason that Jesus saw all women, it was his divine consciousness 
You see, Jesus was, was the second person of the Trinity. So he had a consciousness of love, Christian agape love. Mm-hmm. And that meant he saw everybody. That is another thing. You see, the divine consciousness of Jesus. And that's what he wanted us, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life following his way. That helps us to understand. And you see, now that we know the conflict between the sexes have caused the evolution of all those power structures. And we know how hardwired they are. And we know now why women have had to fight. And when you see Jesus like that, that he was he was completely free of all of that. That was his love. And you can see that he was puzzled. You see, he saw things differently because he was illuminated by love. That's when he said, you know, he said, if you continue in my words, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When moral theologians read the New Testament, Jesus didn't leave any thou shalt not. He didn't, you know, didn't leave any list of rules. It was all about how you should be. That's why he told so many stories. He had to tell stories and use reference. Like he couldn't write it down or just say it as a list. I mean, I mean the Old Testament is the Torah. It's full of law. And follow his example, you see. Which is, you know, you know, of, which is loving and forgiving, and so to follow, do what he, then, you know, it will set you free, free of sin and free of needing the law. You'll be led by the Spirit. You will see people in a different way. You, will, you know, that's the whole thing about grace. So the title of your book is Jesus and Women Beyond Feminism. Where does feminism fail, or has feminism succeeded? Okay, put it this way: political feminism can tackle the symptoms of the perennial battle of the sexes. But only a revolution of grace can restore the heart of the sexes depicted in Genesis. Feminists have made some progress for women, but see, unfortunately, you know the kind of species we are, a movement that arises like that, the pendulum has to swing too far in the other way. There is a downside to it. You know, there's lower rates of marriage, higher rates of marriage breakup, and more promiscuity, and women committing adultery too now, and rates of adultery, you know, we gain. We're still objectified. And you see, now women have to work, be a perfect wife, be a perfect, you know, we still, but the thing is also that feminism can go a bit too far and try and mean that, try and say that men and women are the same. They're not. You see, the Bible makes it the complementarity of the sexes is what the world needs. Females have gifts of love, compassion, empathy, and males have their gifts. It's the complementarity of males and females in the world that only a revolution of grace can do that. Secular Christianity is ahead of institutional Christianity now as regards, you know, sexism has been reduced in secular Christianity, but Jesus, his example, agape love and seeing women as he saw them, that can guide male and female conversion experiences. We need more focus on ecclesial-based communities. That's one thing I like about liberating theology. And like the early church, the Pauline church, where conversion experiences are guided. One of the things I do in my book, I've done a a new son of man Christology, which is inspired by the new knowledge that women have. We discussed earlier where you are, you're in Ireland, how the church has become irrelevant to the modern woman. How do women find themselves re-engaged in church, church as modeled by Christ Jesus? The thing is that I'm hoping my book will be an inspirational call to action for women to campaign, to restore the status they had in the early church. That reading the Gospels and seeing the way Jesus treated women, to know that this is the way forward. Only by following in the path of Jesus can women get real. When I say Jesus beyond feminism, 
you know, going that way with conversion experiences, following the Gospels, to the healing power of grace, to, to relationships. There are women campaigning for ordination. There are, there are movements in the church. And I'm hoping that my book can contribute. It can be an inspirational call to women to campaign because we need to get the status back that we had in the early church. And then if we have equal authority with males in the church, and in doing so, will impact on the public sphere as well. Like, in other words, the church can give an example to the political sphere, and go, like not be supporting, but the church can actually show how. Would we be better off doing a new work as far as church, or should we go back to the church as is and try to revolutionize or to revive an old church? The Pauline church, the first phase of the church, really is the ideal church. There was no elitist, there was no clerical lay divide. Every part of the body, that all of the body has to be working together. Everybody is important and the gifts of ministries or the gifts, other gifts that people have that can help, that we need to get back to the Pauline church. The best way of bringing that about, women will be the ones that can, you know, propel the church into a new, more spiritual phase. Should men be threatened or what position should men take here? This is feminist theology, which is very different to political feminism. Feminism even could only have arisen in a Judeo-Christian culture. You see, male and female complementarity worked very well in the early church. The church can show, you see, if, if men, women are given equal rights with males in the church, it's not, I don't think that should be threatening. Another thing is, right, particularly in Catholicism, very, you know, patriarchal, very high power structures. I mean, there's a lot of clericalism. That's one of the issues in, in Catholicism, clericalism, the long careerism. It's like an aristocracy. You start off, you know, a deacon, a priest, a monsignor, a bishop, an archbishop, cardinal, pope. Jesus travelled around and he was God and he travelled around in a group of males and females as their leader, but he was on an equal level. with. I mean, he, he was their servant. That's what he said, you know. He actually told him he was their servant, he was their slave. First among you will be slave to all, right? With those power structures really need to be abolished. And uh, so we have an egalitarian. I mean, gifts of leadership are important, but they don't have to give rise to elitist power structures. I mean, Jesus was a great leader. That's another thing in Roman Catholicism, because it's an all-male, an all-male caste. There's been all kinds of abuses of power. You see, the more that's what the Me Too movement has shown. Power structures generate abuses of power. They'll attract in overly ambitious males. But the thing is, if that's done away with, you see, men will then, they won't have that pressure on them. They will be encouraged to develop their gifts of love and compassion, of how male and female complementarity can transform the world for the better. Like there's a lot of great theology in Vatican II, like liberation theology. By the way, one of the reasons why in the US, I studied in Fordham University, and one of the things that always struck me when I was in America is that Christianity is at its most dynamic in the US all the denominations, because of the separation of church and state. Political power needs to be done away with. And But the thing is, you see, we are political beings. So that means people in the church with the conversion experiences, they will vote for people who think will behave in the most Christian way. So it'll affect how they vote. It'll have actually a much more authentic form of political power in that way. That is how the world can be transformed for the better. The next phase of Christianity, I'd actually go so far as to say that women will actually have to have more authority than males for a while. So Mary Magdalene was the first preacher of Christianity. So, you know, that's another thing that one of the excuses that Roman Catholicism makes. Jesus chose the 12 and 
they were males. And, but you couldn't send females out to preach in that culture because it would have put their lives at risk. And also the 12, he picked the 12 to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They didn't have the power. They'd fallen apart. He saw himself as, as, you know, he was going to bring about a new Israel with the 12 tribe revived and the 12 would be the head of them. So they were unique. In the early church, everybody who preached Christianity was considered to be an apostle. And Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. She was the first to preach Christianity. She was actually the first church leader. She was the church for the first three days. So women's roles in the church should always be contextualized in that, in the role of Mary Magdalene. I think we understand his divinity in a way that men can't yet. We can teach that to you guys. We can teach that to men. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's apparent to me that both men and women are burdened with an ideology of what their roles should be. That is a violation of all of our consciousness. What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? And also the whole idea of harmony between male and female. We do need to see that model. If you think of the Me Too movement, which has helped us to understand the impact of male power structures, and see, evolution has shown us how they evolved, and Me Too has highlighted how it leads to abuses of power. Because men can use their power to withhold or give their resources to women. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was God. Paul said he didn't use his equality with God as as something to be exploited. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, he went from God to incarnation, to being basically the slave of everybody and to crucifixion. He went that way. Jesus went from God down to death on a cross. See, he went in the opposite way to the way evolution has made males go. You see, his statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Me Too movement has highlighted that evolution and the Me Too has highlighted that, the full meaning of that. I am the way, the truth and the life. His way is a way that goes in the opposite direction to the way the male mm-hmm. sex go. Do you have any concerns for overcorrecting? You see, overcorrecting is something, well, that is something that we're likely that we do as a, as a political species. The pendulum in feminism is swinging a bit too far in the other way. The way that things won't go too far is with only with grace. With grace, it will be equality, not in a political tyranny. It'll be female and male complementarity, which will be as liberating for males as for females. And it will create a new world that we can't imagine now. Like, what would the world have been like? The world that God intended, mm-hmm. with male and female equal domination, dominion over the world. But that would be dominion in a different meaning. I love your emphasis on grace. No political revolution can ever help us to attain our full potential as a species as male and females. Only a revolution of grace. We had the Jesus People Movement in the 70s, going on around that same time, Woodstock and things of that nature. We've always had these parallel type movements, what God is doing parallel to what human efforts are. Do you believe that the Me Too movement is running parallel? The Me Too movement is political feminism. In some ways, it is going too far. Sometimes trying to emasculate men and it try to deconstruct relationships between the sexes. That's the problem. The first reformation in the Western church was Luther. There's going to be another reformation and this one will be led by women for the next phase. Just for a while, it will be guided by women. We've been led by males <laughs> in the church. 
for so long. At least that is one good thing that in the reform tradition there are there is some female ordination because the reform tradition is more inclusive. It is more Christian. Me too and feminism have done a lot of good and but politics yeah can do you know politics can can tackle certain symptoms and and all that but to attain our full potential as a species our full potential as men and full potential as women we can only do it in the church through grace through conversion experience actually one of the things that I like about evangelical Christianity and in evangelical Christianity of course it's very focused but one of the games is to bring about a born-again experience in adults we need more Christian apologetics to bring about a born-again experience so that's should be in all Christianity, in adults, to bring about a new conversion experience, a born-again conversion experience. Carl Rahner, he's a great uh, Roman Catholic theologian, and he devised a system, a system called existential ethics. Because, you know, psychological problems, mental health issues, and that's one thing, you know, we do as moral theologians, can be a big obstacle to moral freedom. Because if you have mental health issues or you're, you know, he's devised a great system on that to combine with theology to help people attain their full potential, their full moral potential. And you see, don't forget too, like people in Christian communities that have trained in psychology would be able to volunteer, would be able to do that. So it's to help people psychologically be strong, to be strong psychologically, and then to follow in the path that you need that as well. And, and also to discover your strengths and weaknesses and, and you know how to overcome your weaknesses. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. Dr. Middleton, it has been my joy and delight to have you as my guest today. Thank you. Dr. Neve Middleton, author of Jesus and Women Beyond Feminism. For additional information on Neve Middleton books, visit NeveMiddletonAuthor.com. <laughs> That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.